This is CrewCast, the podcast about the most infamous band in rock history, Motley Crew. Your resident crew head, Jason, here with you. And thank you for listening to the podcast. Please hit that subscribe button if it's the first time, whatever platform you're listening on, and share with a fellow crew head. That's how we continue to grow. And of course, follow at CrewCast on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm talking with uh, David Lucarelli, uh, of course, uh, the man who pinned Crude. Uh, the, I guess we would call it an unauthorized play about Motley Crue. Yes, a completely unauthorized play of, um, about a band that rose up from the streets of Hollywood in the 80s to become a cultural phenomenon and how for one brief shining moment everything seemed possible. And with the caveat that this play is not authorized or endorsed by Motley Crue or any of its members. <laughs> well, it was cool. Thank you for sending me the link. Of course, uh, we could probably throw that in the description if people maybe want to watch it after the fact, but you're, you're doing the last run of shows for this. Yeah. So we did uh, five sold out shows as part of the Hollywood Fringe Festival. And for those of you who don't know, it's a it's a really cool festival um, throughout the month of June in Hollywood where they put on hundreds of plays all within Hollywood and very small theaters. You know, our theater held 49 people. And, um, you know, we we had a, a great run. So they asked us to come back and do three encore shows, which we're doing uh, this coming Friday, Saturday and Sunday uh, at 8 p.m. nightly at the Flight Theater, uh, the Complex Hollywood in Hollywood. And uh, yeah, we're you know, we're, we're just excited to do a few more shows. Yeah, it's a it's a very clever play. And I, you know, when when I started watching, I was like, okay, is there going to how's it going to play on this? How's it going to play on that? And what what, you know, and then all of a sudden I was surprised with some humor and I'm sitting in and and laughing. I mean, you know, just the way you did the the narrator, so to speak, had my attention to start with. Yeah, yeah. Well, we definitely, the whole reason this play came about was because sometime around 19, uh, or 2019, rather, I, um, I had read The Dirt, you know, and I knew The Dirt movie was coming out. And, you know, after I saw that movie, I thought to myself, well, this is really good for what it is. It, it captures the overall spirit of the band, um, but it's also only one aspect of who they were. You know, and as a lifelong fan of the band, I've been, you know, a huge fan since the early to mid 80s. Um, I just thought to myself, well, this is broad strokes how they're going to be remembered. They're going to be remembered as this band that did a lot of drugs and had a lot of sex and got in trouble with the law. And that's all very true as far as it goes. But there's so much more to them than that. There's so much more substance. Their personalities were, were so much more interesting. And there's so much that's just going to be swept aside and forgotten by history. And I thought to myself, I want to make a play from the fans' perspective that talks about how much this band meant to me, why they meant so much to me, and, you know, sort of explains why they're able to co-headline stadiums 40 years on in their career yeah i i I think that's one of the things too as a crew fan you know on one hand we're like uh fuck the critics critics are never going to give them any just do but then at the same time it's like hey critics what the hell's up you know but it's it's like on one hand it's a nice scar to wear as a motley crew fan on the other hand you're like come on give them their just do i mean you know um 
I just, you wouldn't have thought those four guys thrown together, such different backgrounds would, would create what they did. It's really one of those situations, the, uh, the sum of the parts, you know, or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, obviously four extremely talented individuals, um, and I think each one of them is is so idiosyncratic, you know, uh, about what they bring to the band. Um, you know, obviously, Nikki is, you know, people talk about Kurt Cobain being Generation X's premier songwriter and lyricist. But maybe because I'm a little bit older, <laughs> you know, uh, Kurt Cobain never really spoke to me in in that way in the way that nikki six did right. you know and i you know i i, I kind of I, I look at the whole seattle scene and i say you know these were guys that muddied their waters that they might appear to be deep and uh i think of, of the woody allen quote when they said you know don't listen to what your teachers have to say you know look at how they live their lives and what happens to them and a lot of these guys ended up doing themselves in yeah. You know, and, you know, you could say there, but for the grace of God with with uh, Nikki. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I just felt a strong connection with him uh, right out of the gate because maybe because he came from a broken home and I'm a child of divorce, like, you know, many members of Generation X. Um, but, you know, I, I just if you look back at the, the early interviews that these guys gave, they were really um an interesting combination, Nikki particularly, of of kind of idealists and, you know, hedonistic uh, nihilists at the same time, you know, um, like, I just don't think that they get nearly enough credit for, for what they were doing, like a song like Fight for Your Rights, you know, talking about racial harmony at a time in our country when, uh, you know, the the race there's a lot of racial tension and i mean not that there isn't today but you know um and so you know i wanted to include that in the play um you know nikki gave an interview very early on where he talked about um yeah you know our fans might be looked down upon uh by society but i'll tell you what they're smart and they're going to grow up to be the future leaders of the world, you know, and that got me, that got me right here. And that stuck with me, uh, you know, for the, for the rest of my days. And, you know, that kind of thing, if you look at other bands, they might've been good bands, but, you know, rat wasn't giving interviews talking about stuff like that. <laughs> and I think for me, I kind of stumbled onto them. I was about six years old and, you know, shout out the devil was the first introduction, but as a kid that always felt like an outsider is like, okay, I can at least belong to this, you know, I, you know, and, and my brother introduced me to him and, and okay. It was a camaraderie with my older brother. The thing we could kind of do together were, you know, the bunk beds and Hey man, can we put on too fast for love? Sure. And he's asleep snoring away and I'm flipping it over for the fourth time, you know? And yeah, no, that's awesome. Me too. I mean, shout at the devil was my introduction to them and I very quickly got too fast for love. And then I saw them for the first time opening up for Ozzy Osbourne on the bark of the moon tour. All right. And uh, I was blown away. I mean, you know, I, I had to seriously consider whether or not I could still call kiss my favorite band, you know, because these guys were, so amazing live and then they came back and they headlined uh, a theater tour in pittsburgh uh on the shout at the devil tour 
And so I went to that and that was amazing. And, you know, that concert was literally so loud that like after the show, you know, you had to call back when they had pay phones and, and everybody's ears were ringing so loud. Nobody could hear if there was a dial tone to tell if the phone was working. Oh, that's awesome. I wish I could have seen him in that that phase. I didn't even get to see him until after they reunited. The oh, okay. Time, you know, so for me, it was like a long, you know, time into my fandom. Um, but, you know, like you were saying, you know, with, with Nikki, definitely that interesting, you know, background that gave him an architect as if it became, you know, I think 21 is booked at a good job of showing his obsession and where it really started. And he was one of those people that almost knew when he was young, what he was going to do, which, which on one hand, I'm jealous. I'm like, okay, I've fallen into some awesome things, but he just, he had that vision, but, but so did Mick, you know, so did, sure. you know, Vince, Vince was kind of the one, you know, all right, cool, whatever. I'll go rock out with you guys. But Vince was very intent and, and Tommy, you know, oftentimes we forget this is all he's ever done. He was a kid, man. He, he was a kid. Yeah. You you forget. He was like, I think, 19 years old when he first started joining the band. And, you know, which is, you know, there's there's from a psychological perspective, not to analyze him, but there's this concept that, you know, once somebody becomes rich and famous, they their personalities to some extent become kind of frozen and amber. And, you know, so a lot of rock stars are kind of like professional teenagers, um, you know, and I, I think that the Tommy Lee is that living example of like you know to this day he's still that energetic gregarious guy who's you know hard not to love yeah i i agree and then you know mick mars i mean if you you know i know you you do some music and things like that it's just how can you not love the playing and when you really you know what i've talked about a couple times on here if you really break down the songs or you hear like a demo version then what he did with it at it in the finished product you're like oh my god this guy's guitar playing is brilliant yeah he doesn't get nearly enough credit you know and and uh nobody uh plays that riff with those down downward picking you know live wire like that i've seen a lot of motley Crue tribute bands and some of them are very good but uh you know it's it's all that technique in the right hand and you know the thing about motley Crue is there are four stylists right nobody sounds like vince nobody plays like mick nobody you know has that driving engine and yet funk and flash of tommy lee and then you know nobody writes songs and lyrics and performs and has that overall vision like Nikki. So, you know, they are collectively this brilliant example of the American dream. This, these guys that just worked so hard, uh, you know, and started out with nothing, um, you know, from the perspective of being a teenager in the early 80s, it was inspiring because these guys were taking on the world uh you know they like living by their own rules and it seemed like they could dance underwater and not get wet okay. you know and when you're 13 14 years old that's really inspiring you know but i think at the end of the day the one of the main points i wanted to make with this play because i'm a little older i'm a little wiser and unfortunately over the years being a rock and roller myself i've lost a lot of people to drugs, especially heroin. And, you know, uh, Motley Crue was a great band, is a great band, not because of the drugs, but despite them. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, and I couldn't agree more and kind of in the, in the same boat, of course, as we were talking about before we started recording, you know, I went through my addiction and now it's become a lifelong, you know, purpose to, to, to help people. And it's ironic for me. And I've said it in, in, when I've been interviewed is, you know, some of the ironies of my life is my heroes, you know, my dad and Nikki six was in there and you're talking about two addicts that ended up getting clean. So it's almost, mm-hmm. almost like a mirroring of, all right, you know, what's this all about uh, living some excess and then going, yeah, this isn't really the good way. This is totally robbing me of purpose and fulfillment and, and having a good life. And, and you get to see that transition with, with all the guys. I mean, Mick, it's a little more silent, but I mean, God, he was on death's door and, you know, popping medication and not really knowing that he had this serious issue that if, oh, if I get a hip replacement, I'm going to be okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, Mick is, is definitely the fact that he was able to do and is still able to do everything that he does with this progressive disease that has no cure. Um, and you know that much of the time he's still probably in a great deal of pain and discomfort. Um, and yet he just carries on and soldiers on. I mean, it, you can't help but be inspired by that. Yeah. So what inspired you? When, when did you really start sitting down and putting the play together and, and share with some other people and go, Hey guys, I'm thinking of doing this. Yeah. So I had written a play earlier on uh, 2018 uh, for the Fringe Fest called Dr. Zamba's Ghost Show of Terror, which was uh, kind of a, a fun revival of a type of show they used to put on in the 50s it was called a spook show or a ghost show. Um, and it was before there were haunted houses and horror TV hosts. They would four wall a theater. They would put on kind of spooky magic and a seance and some burlesque. And then at the end, they had a blackout sequence where the audience is in total darkness and they're surrounded by supernatural phenomena they can see, hear and touch. So we went back, we studied some of the ghost show manuals from the 50s. We figured out how they did it, put our own little twist on it. And we did that show. Um, and that was such a success. I thought, well, you know, I want to do a different show. I started writing Crude in 2019. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And there were a couple of years where, uh, you know, it just wasn't practical. The Fringe Fest wasn't really happening. Or if it was, it was virtual. And I, you know, there's nothing like putting on a show in front of a live audience. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to be able to do that. And, um, yeah, so we... Uh, we started rehearsing and originally the name of the show was called the crew (laughs) and you know we like i said this is a very very small production and you know we never thought in a million years we would even be on motley crew's radar uh but um unfortunately we managed to catch their attention in a negative way where Nikki Six posted that, uh, you know, he wasn't happy about this, that it was totally unauthorized. Now, we had always said that it was completely unauthorized in all of our materials, but, you know, uh, we got a lo- uh, cease and desist from their lawyer saying, you know, we, we're not happy that you're calling it the crew. We're not happy with the promotional image that you're using. And you better not be using any of their music or lyrics or song titles or album titles or anything like that. Nothing copywritten or trademarked. Well, we weren't. So that wasn't really a problem. But we immediately changed the, you know, the name of the play and the promotional campaign. 
and, uh, you know, apologized profusely. He said, you know, hey, we never meant to do anything to upset you guys. And, you know, we feel like we're in full compliance now and um, consulted informally with a couple of music lawyers and went over the play with a fine tooth comb. Uh, ironically, you know, we ended up making a couple uh, minor changes in the play just to cover all of our bases. And I think it actually ended up making the play stronger. So like Nietzsche said, that which does not kill you makes it stronger. Uh, and, uh, you know, Motley Crue fans have come and seen the play 201. They've very much enjoyed it. Um, you know, I don't want to give away everything that happens in the play because we still have a few performances, but there's I would say virtually no overlap between any of the stories in the dirt and the stories that we're telling in crude. You know, um, when I was growing up, I would read in Circus Magazine and Hip Prater that, you know, Nicky stole this his, his, an instrument when he didn't have the money for it and whatnot. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like that's a that's something he's talked about in multiple places that that would be interesting to dramatize the exact logistics of how he would have done that you know um so so that's kind of fun and uh then then we've had people that are just theater people that have seen the show and didn't really know that much about motley crew and they've come up to us and they said oh man you know i thought these guys were just a hair metal party band i didn't know that they were so interesting and had so much substance to them now i want to go and you know uh, listen to their music and really check them out so Hopefully, we've helped the band make a few new fans, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that it was in there because even as a kid, I remember and probably watching way too young, you know, Motley Crue Uncensored on VHS, but Nikki telling that story, you know, I, I snuck the gold top Les Paul into my case and, you know, it started, <laughs> I mean, so he was talking about that was what, 86, 87, something like that, because I think Theater of Pain had just come out. So it was like 87-ish or something like that. So, yeah. You know, so it's, it's one of those lores that, that lives on, you know, it's one of those important important stories just like tommy talking about banging away on the pots as a kid you know right playing along to kiss's firehouse if i recall <laughs> yeah yeah i'm a fellow kiss fan too so that's pretty funny how you know you were like i think this is replacing my favorite band and i can mirror that you know i was the kid that had the the trapper keeper with kiss on it and then you know here comes this motley crew thing it's like whoa what the hell is this this is gnarly yeah, no, I totally, I, you know, to this day, Kiss and Motley are my two favorites. In fact, my wife and I were going on the Kiss cruise this, uh, this, this fall. So, I, you know, it's, uh, I got a funny story I could tell you. This is not really crew related, but I see your Tool shirt, right? I, I saw Tool, uh, play a show at the Whiskey. <laughs> oh wow yeah like before they you know were were big at all and like i want to say it was on a bill with uh white zombie before they were anybody and like the lynch mob you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and i gotta say man like i they were so intense live this was when maynard was still like getting like i felt like he was literally gonna jump off the stage and start pummeling people at any given moment he was so so intense yeah he's he's still a gnarly dude i had the uh because i worked in radio for like 20 years and i tried to get an interview with them and i had a couple people like 
there's a couple of people you don't want to interview Maynard and Marilyn Manson. I'm like, yeah, I'll skip on Marilyn Manson, but no, yeah. man, if you're intelligent, you know, you can have a conversation, but if you're just sitting there asking stupid questions, he's going to bury you real fucking quick. Okay. Yeah. I can yeah. see that. <laughs> One of those guys. It's like, I'm a well-learned person. I'm going to have a good conversation. If not, this is going to become comical at, at your expense really fast. And unfortunately never worked that one out, but uh, you know, Hey, we digress. We so, do. so the, the um, crude, you got uh, three showings left. Of course, LA area. If people want to find out more, how to uh, watch the play, get some of those tickets, go down and see it. Cause you guys, this is it, man. This is it. Yeah. After this Sunday night, there will be no more live performances of crude. Um, so yeah, like I said, it is, uh, if you go to hollywoodfringe.org and you search for keyword crude, C-R-U-D-E, it'll come right up. And I'll just say right now, if you guys want to use discount code Dave L, D-A-V-E-L, you can get tickets for six bucks each. So you really can't beat that. And uh, yeah, it is this Friday, August 19th, Saturday, August 20th, and Sunday, August 21st. 8 p.m. nightly at the complex, the flight theater at the complex in Hollywood. Um, it's it's funny. It's actually on Santa Monica and Wilcox, <laughs> which is where Guns N' Roses took a very famous photo of them hanging outside a liquor store. It's right on that corner. So it's, you know, part of the Hollywood neighborhood that Motley Crue came out of and Guns N' Roses hung out in. And, you know, we are like like Nikki Six said, we are the extremely real thing. Yes, sir. All right. Let's talk about Dave uh, and your fandom of the crew. Uh, favorite album? I got to go shout at the devil, but Too Fast for Love is is a real close second. Yeah, I'm with you on that. All right. Uh, top three favorite crew tracks. Okay. Um, number one, Danger. That's the song that I w- wish that they would pull out, and I don't think they've ever done it live. Right. Uh, you know, but I, to me, that is such a, a great example of, of Nikki as a street poet, right? Um, you know, there, there's that famous poem by Robert Frost, uh, Two Roads Diverged in the Wood, and I Chose One, and It Made All the Difference. Um, and what's great about that poem is there's this ambiguity there. You know, he never says whether choosing the road less traveled by was actually a better choice or a worse choice. It just made all the difference in his life. And, uh, you know, there, there's, you get some of that poetry in danger when, when Nikki says, uh, you know, um, tattooed lies, distant eyes, Hollywood. It's been 10 long years of tears and fears. The end is near. You know, that could be a good thing or that could be incredibly ominous. And I just I just love, love, love everything about that song. Um, let's see. Number two, I got to go probably with Shout at the Devil. I mean, you know, one of the premier anthems um, and just the impact of that song to this day. It has this this energy and this viciousness of it that like whenever it comes on, I can't help but just like pump my fist in the air and bang my head along to it. Yeah, definite ferocity to it. That uh, And it pissed our parents off. So which was great. It absolutely did. Yeah. So there, that was a bonus. And um, you know, let's see, number three, I mean, the, the, you know, you're talking about a band that has so many 
great songs. Um, so I would say it's probably a toss up uh, between Livewire, um, you know, because again, uh, you know, fast, young, running free, a little bit better than I used to be is such, a, such an artfully uh, expressed sentiment that that is is simple and yet everybody can relate to that you know everybody can relate to being young and on the streets and feeling invincible like you could take on the world and take your fist and break down walls and so you know i'd say it's a cross between that and uh also wild side i think is is just an amazing tune that really captures the grit and the grime of you know living in hollywood which i can say as somebody who still lives in hollywood you know um i can relate to to all of that yeah i mean you, you, i just immediately the the lyric uh, you know a baby cries a cop dies another day paid on the wild side it's like oh yeah you know it's uh right the stuff yeah going on that is out there it had it really did have you know, it, it's fun. It's great. That driving bass line. I think it's the first bass line I ever learned when I started playing bass. And I'm still a terrible bass player, but that's neither here nor there. But it was that wonderful thing. And then when you really started to listen, like, yeah, it's a fun song. But yet at the same time, it's kind of dark. And, you know, they had a great way of of always doing that kind of a pop hook feel but yet sometimes really delivering a grimy message to you without you really interpreting it maybe that way initially right which is which is the great thing about the band i think is that um you know there's an interview where nikki talks about fight for your rights and he says you know this band is against prejudice of any kind and if if we can help the world come together in any way whatsoever uh then you know that's what we want to do and you know that's such an inspiring message at the same time he was writing ftw on his shoulder you know so so you know he was a complicated multifaceted guy who um was able to almost in a subversive way with vince's sugary sweet pop melodies um get across these these sentiments that were not typical for mainstream hard rock bands absolutely yeah they just had that magical way of doing that you know hey they hooked us they the, the great riffs everything else but yeah lyrically and what the vibe was it for me like i told people is always felt and still takes me back to a place of feeling danger that's yeah. the only way i could put it yeah no i you know it's funny <laughs> i went and saw the theater of pain tour and at the time they were pretty much the most dangerous band in america and nobody thought that that tour was even going to happen or they were going to be able to continue it was their first headlining tour and like literally i still remember like there were we saw multiple fights you know we saw people getting wheeled away on stretchers there were people that were like sitting in front of us that were passed out in their own vomit like you know that never woke up for the show you know and it was it was such a crazy uh over-the-top atmosphere but again theater of pain right i mean 
just conceptually uh, was inspired by La Commedia dell'arte, which is a 17th century kind of theatrical Italian opera in which, you know, you had masked characters like the Scaramouche. And at the same time, Nikki had read this essay called Theater of Cruelty by Anton Artois, where he talked about assaulting the audience disorienting the audience, making the volume so loud, making the visuals shocking, making the, um, the, the lights blinding, and in a way to basically set people free to unlock their inner truths, you know. And you could see that in Theater of Pain, where for the first time, like the lights that went off was like the biggest, uh, you know, photo blast from a like a camera you've ever seen where like the, the light you, your eyes would be flashing and you know with with the lights they were so bright and again no other band at that time was was taking these kinds of esoteric disparate concepts and then retooling them to work for a mainstream hard rock audience but that's not really talked about so again something that we wanted to talk about in the play yeah, well, and you guys nailed it, of course, like uh, uh, Dave said, and we'll put that ticket link in the podcast description. Make sure that you uh, guys check it out if you're in the area. And hey, Dave, uh, I know this is a bonus episode, but let's have you on again. I mean, if you want to pick some topics that are really fascinate you or something, come back on and we'll uh, wrap out about it. Sure, man. This has been a total pleasure. I so appreciate you having me on. You have a great rest of your day. Please hit that subscribe button if it's the first time, whatever platform you're listening on, and share with a fellow crew head. That's how we continue to grow. And, of course, follow at CrewCast on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, crew heads are best. Fuck the rest. <laughs>